welcome to Estradial Illusions. We are our Sundance coverage continues. We have a returning guest to the show. Michelle Jaworski is back with us. You may remember Michelle from the recaps, uh, the first and the sixth of that niche art house series, Game of Thrones, as Clint likes to call it. Michelle, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I was here for the two uh, Game of Thrones episodes, you know, that show absolutely nobody's heard of. Uh, I am an... Ener- I'm, I'm surprised it wasn't at Sundance. I know, maybe uh, maybe they were re-workshopping uh, it or something. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I am an entertainment and geek culture reporter and a uh, critic at The Daily Dot. Cover a lot of entertainment, so everything from... The art house films that you know premiere at a lot of film festivals to Star Wars and Marvel and everything in between. So we've, uh, I assume, for all listeners, because I know just nobody ever misses an episode. We've put out three Sundance episodes so far. They've been uh, a bit shorter in nature. We did a spotlight with the. Uh, with Emily Wilson and Danny Deichel of the short Danny's Girl. And then we had two separate composers on. We had Anthony Willis, the composer of Promising Young Woman. And he actually played a lot of the music. So that's the first. First time we didn't use our normal outro because he played us out, to quote Bill O'Reilly, of that horrible viral thing, that reference that nobody's going to get. And then we also had Nathan Barr from Uncle Frank, which made me cry. We'll get into that. A little bit later. And then we also have a big announcement. I found out today that we charted, uh, we are, uh, Estrella Illusions is ranked the 91st uh, podcast in entertainment in the country of, this is very surprising, it's Russia, a place where I'm not even allowed to go. So uh, to all of our gay listeners in the former USSR, uh, we thank you and uh, keep keep it up. Maybe Vladimir Putin listens to the show. We don't know, but I uh, thought that was exciting to get from Apple. So that's a odd one. But uh, Sundance was uh, really one of those experiences that uh, I'm sure Michelle probably feels the same way. It was kind of a bucket list type thing. It was one of those uh, great American traditions that I'd wanted to be a part of. That along, uh, I've kind of crossed that and uh, Coachella off my list. Now I just need to go to San Diego Comic-Con and I can die a happy nerd. Yeah. Uh, when I was a lot younger, I I know that Sundance always seemed like this kind of faraway magical place that I would see on this television show called Extra in Access Hollywood uh, that my mom would watch every night. So it never felt tangible that, oh, yeah, one day I would go to this thing and I would be working it. But it's 2020. Here we are. Unlikely dreams come true. Yeah, and it's really uh, it, it is a site. You, there were a lot of things going into the festival that I was kind of told to prepare for. No sleep, uh, no place to eat or I guess no time to eat as well. Kind of a two prong uh battle of of endurance and uh coming off of a uh a couple pretty invasive surgeries in october i was pretty sure that i wasn't going to be able to do it and then i said you know okay i'll go and uh we'll see how this thing 
works out. And it was funny. I stayed for a week. And uh, on the final day, all I could think about was, you know, I want to stay. Is there any way I can just try and extend this a little longer? But uh, I think I'm glad I'm glad I listened to my body because I was pretty, pretty toast by the end of it. But there's just so much. Uh, there's just so many films that that premiered there. Over a hundred, and uh, people were impressed. I managed to see twenty four plus four that I'd seen at pre screenings, and I still feel as though like there was there's this huge huge chunk of the festival that I just totally missed out on. It's weird. You get you get Sundance FOMO while at Sundance. Yeah, I know. I only stayed for five days, I think, and. Even then, there's so many talks, there's so many panels, there are the, all the short films, there are films that premiered after I left that I really wanted to see, and then there's the entirety of Slam Dance just up the road that I never got oh, a yeah. chance to do. I actually, uh, programming note also, uh, Speed, I'm glad you mentioned Slam Dance. Uh, I reviewed eight of the films uh, for Slam Dance, but one of them, and it was great, Tara, actually, we were wa- going to watch a movie, and I let her pick from the uh, slate that I had, and she picked one called Shoot to Marry, which ended up being my favorite, and at breakfast, I think on the second morning I was there, I saw the director of Shoot to Marry, and he hadn't had his premiere yet, so I went up to him, and I'm like, I loved your movie, and he looks at me, and he says, how have you seen my movie? And I was like, well, I got it ahead of time. I got a pre-screen. I've already reviewed it. And he's like, wait, you, you already, he wanted to like see my review that wasn't up yet because it was embargoed. And uh, he's going to come on the show, uh, Steve Markle. So same dance, a lot of fun, but uh, I totally, uh, I was totally with you. They, they invited me to a couple of the premieres and I was like, nope, I have an express pass. There's literally no nothing you could offer me that would be easier than than going around Sundance. So sorry, but uh, great festival. A lot of those movies were a lot of fun. Yeah, I definitely had to work, you know, just to get mine. I had a general pass, which basically meant I got into the press screenings, but I needed tickets to get into the the general screenings, uh, including some of the premieres. But fortunately, that wasn't too difficult. Although I know for a couple of films in particular, I think Crip Camp, uh, which was a documentary that premiered opening night and Palm Springs, that Andy Samberg comedy that Hulu and Neon bought for like $17.5 million and 69 cents, I think. Nice. (laughs) I, I feel like they put, they tacked on the 69 cents just so they could like, have that reaction to it. I mean, it also beat the record by 69 cents, I guess. Uh, but I had seen some photos and had heard her things from, you know, friends at the festival who had tickets to the premiere of that movie and weren't uh, allowed in because they were filled to capacity. No. So I know, I know that was uh, an issue that some people had faced, but it was my first one. So I don't know if that's, a normal occurrence at Sundance or not from what I gather it wasn't so um yeah I know with the Miss Americana premiere we there were a lot of people who were trying to get in looking for tickets and I mean just from a sheer spectacle standpoint because it wasn't necessarily something that I uh cared that much about I was excited to go and (laughs) 
see all the spectacle and the way that the whole bus system was set up and all the theaters, some of them were high schools. Uh, the Eccles was a high school auditorium and the Mark was in a converted basketball court. And all of this just really makes you laugh and think, gee, you know, this, uh, this big international world renowned festival, the biggest festival in all of, uh, in the whole country, the city, they do such a great job preparing for all of it. But just at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's a ski town that has to deal with, uh, so much more, uh, people than they would ever have to deal with in any other instance. And there's just a sense that, uh, it takes Park City to its breaking point, especially when it comes to eating and sleeping and all of those other, uh, seemingly normal human functions that we're all expected to do, but there's just too many people there. I know at certain points it was almost impossible to walk down Main Street, uh, you know, trying to get a cup of coffee somewhere or sitting down for a meal at places in restaurants that, um, as far as I can tell, you know, have Sundance menus that are basically, you know, kind of like surge pricing for restaurants. Uh, so, you know, so it's hard to like get in there and like find somewhere. So people are waiting outside just to get into a place and, you know, people like standing in the street, people standing like on the sidewalk, you can barely walk around. And here I am looking at a big backpack with my, my laptop for half the festival, trying to get where I need to go and succeeding maybe 90% of the time. Yeah, I thankfully decided that it was probably not a good idea for me to carry my either my laptop or my iPad around because uh, I was working with borrowed stamina as much as it is, having had surgery just a couple months ago, but became an expert at writing pretty much every article on my phone, trying to deal with deadlines, and also just trying to utilize the downtime in between screenings because there's you know not all that much else you would have done but uh thankfully i didn't i wasn't in a position where i was lost uh where i lost out on anything because of uh just not being able to uh figure out the bus schedule or, or delays and part of that was just having uh budgeted myself enough time to be able to do that but I'm still not really sure how I was able to survive. Pure adrenaline? Yeah, something like that. I mean, it was a uh, testament to endurance. And even by the end of the, the last day, I was getting pretty tired. But I still kept thinking to myself, gee, I don't really want to leave this. I just, uh, I don't know. You can, uh, if you go a week with no food, no sleep, uh, after a while, you actually, in a weird kind of sick way, you start to get used to it. I really loved the way that they handled uh, all of all of the different theaters, though. It was unusual to be in uh, a place like the Mark, which is a converted basketball theater. But uh, other ones like the Ray were really cool as well. Did you get to go in uh, any screenings in that theater? It seems kind of like um, maybe a community theater, like a stage sort of thing instead because the screen was fairly small in terms of the, the size of the room uh and I, I spent a lot of time in the ray uh i know i know for me the the main thing i ended up missing was the i missed uh half the snowpiercer panel 
uh, the that's the TV show uh, starring David Diggs and Jennifer Connelly that's coming out in May. It's based or it's um, kind of a remake of sorts of uh, Bong Joon-ho's uh, Snowpiercer, uh, the 2013 movie or 14 movie uh, starring Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton. Uh, and it looked good. It looked promising, but because of the bus schedule, I only saw half the panel. So, uh, that's one I know I'm going to be catching at South by Southwest next month. So I'm excited to see more of that. Just kind of wish the buses were able to figure themselves out or, or something like that. You know, I will say, uh, I lived outside of New York for more than 20 years. I've lived in Los Angeles for close to five years. Uh, I don't know the subway system in New York. I don't really know the metro system here. I do know the uh, metro system in Toronto and the streetcars there a little bit, but I'm absolutely terrible with directions, and yet I was able to, I think by like day two, I had learned the bus schedule and what what buses went where. Most of them seemed to conflict with... uh, they all went to the Eccles, and yet the Mark would have random ones. Thankfully, for the first time in my life, I was utilizing iCalendar, and I was planning ahead of time. So uh, it was able to kind of work like clockwork. I'm interested to know how uh, far in advance you made your Sundance schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say it started about two weeks before. Uh, we had different press passes, so I, um, as part of my press pass, I got 10 tickets that I could choose to to see pretty much whatever I wanted out of what was available. So I initially started my, my planning by picking the movies that I had wanted to see, you know, which went instantly like went out the window uh, when the Snowpiercer panel came up. And then once I'm there, you know, it's a matter of trying to see, Oh, can I see this movie earlier? Oh wait, I have a ticket to this movie. I didn't realize that it was actually going to be in Salt Lake city. So now I got to figure out to try to see it, you know, in Park City instead. And, you know, for those of your listeners who haven't been to Utah, it's like, I think, a half an hour between Salt Lake City and Park City, you know, on a good day with like no traffic and no snow. And uh, that that's a hike. That's a hike. Yeah, there was one instance where I said I was going to cover a premiere at the Sundance Mountain Resort, which is uh, the third place that they were doing screenings. And I quickly learned, oh, even though it's a Sundance and Mountain, it's uh, pretty, pretty far away. And I uh, had to adjust my schedule accordingly. Going up to Salt Lake City for screenings really wasn't particularly feasible. I'm glad I uh, budgeted my time pretty well, though, because uh, there were ones that I had to see, and then there were the ones that you want to see at the festival that you, uh, especially as it went on, there were some that had uh, picked up a lot of buzz, some that you learned quickly were uh, maybe not as great as people were expecting, so to have all of the ones that I just really had to see all my top tiers just planned out completely left me a lot of time to be able to squeeze in some that you just, uh, you hear about and you really, uh, you think that you just can't miss it. Yeah. I, I do know that it, it did feel a little overwhelming because 
even with stuff that I had seen, there's still like all this last minute maneuvering, trying to figure out again, like you said, trying to see movies based on the buzz that have already come out of those respective premieres and realizing that, Oh no, wait, this one that you definitely promised you would review is screening at the exact same time (laughs) or wait, I actually need sleep to, begin to function like a somewhat human being. So no, I'm not going to that 9 a.m. press screening on the on this day. So it's definitely a balancing act. I envy the people who had entire teams that made, you know, planning something like this seem a little easier because then they could split, you know, all of these movies amongst however many people they had there versus... You know, you're one person trying to see literally as much as you can in the time that you're there and then trying to file stuff while you're there, which then takes up time you could be seeing other movies. Yeah, I found myself constantly dealing with the uh, juggling of making sure that I was keeping ahead of my reviews because I didn't want to just sit on them until the end. All the buzz would be gone. But uh, especially in the beginning of the festival when I had two screenings on the the Thursday and then only three on the Friday and the Saturday, I was able to keep uh, myself in a position where I was uh, filing reviews either that day or just a day out. And it wasn't really until the, the end of the festival that I was starting to fall behind of two days out. And uh, I got them all done within, uh, within two, two days after the festival. So I think that's probably uh, a, a pretty good place to be. But then I looked at my my schedule of the ones that I had seen, and then I looked at the the ones that had won awards at at the festival, like Minari, and I realized that really of all of the 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 big the top winners, like the forty year old version, Dick Johnson is dead. The the really the only big one that I had seen was Yalda Night for Forgiveness, and I'd actually seen that ahead of time at a Beverly Hills screening. So uh, maybe I actually didn't uh, didn't plot out my Sundance schedule all that well, but uh, I did see a lot of great movies. It's just weird to be in a position where you think you you think you saw all these great ones, hundred movies. You see twenty four plus another four uh, with pre screenings, and then you look and <laughs> practically none of the ones you see were the winners. So. Uh, I guess that's kind of the the beauty of Sundance. I feel like it's so hard to, you know, kind of distill into, oh, this one single movie, uh, you know, was the one to see, even though I actually did see Minari. So only slightly hypocritical oh, here. I yeah, I, I loved one. it. It was it was one of my favorite uh, films there. It was the last one I saw before I I got on the plane. Which sounds a lot more glamorous than it actually was because then I spent like the next several hours like going into town and replacing my uh, screen protector and then lugging my stuff to the airport. So definitely not glamorous. But as far as final films could go, like that was definitely one I was like, like, oh, I can't beat this or it'd be very hard to beat this and like kind of like go on that you'll have that like downward spiral of, Oh, well this movie's just okay. So I'm glad I did end it on a high note. 
but but even with you know the the audience prizes and like you know all the different categories there's just so many that what maybe three or four movies had more than one award at most yeah there were a lot of winners which was uh i guess great to see that they were uh spread out i loved so many of the ones that i saw a lot of which didn't actually win awards so it was great to see that versus one winning all the awards which would have made me probably feel even more foolish if i uh if it had been one that i actually hadn't seen so glad that the uh festival that the films were still uh still pretty great as the festival went on you don't want to be in a um, position where uh it feels like you're filling up on bread at the buffet table <laughs> but uh each day each day brought uh so many so many new ones that i wasn't expecting be interested to hear what you thought about i i kind of felt like on the first day there was one that i was felt was just so absolutely incredible and then as i saw more and more movies my enthusiasm kind of dampened a bit and i wondered how you uh how you felt about uh the movies that you saw in the beginning of the festival versus later i think my main lag had kind of hit around the middle because the first film that i or you know yeah film that i had seen Actually, at Sundance, because uh, I had done two films uh, at pre-screenings in New York, the first one I saw was Crip Camp. Um, not at the premiere. It was uh, it was also screening at a different theater at the same time as the premiere. So we got the you know, the introduction from Robert Redford and then the Q&A with the directors and some of the film subjects afterwards, you know, through like the simulcast and it was really buzzing. And I know that one I'm still high on, um, you know, like as, as a documentary that I really loved. Um, do you want me to go into it more? I can, or yeah, sure. That'd be great. Okay. Uh, so Crip Camp is a Netflix documentary. It's produced by um, Barack and Michelle Obama's uh, production company. Uh, I think I believe it's called Higher Ground. And it's directed by Nicole Newman and Jim Lebrecht. And it's about this like kind of hippie camp in upstate New York that was around in the 70s. Uh, it was for, um, for the hand- handicapped and it was in the disabled community and Many of the counselors were part of that community themselves. And it's kind of about how this camp was radical in the fact that it treated people with disabilities like human beings, which, you know, didn't really happen in the 70s. And kind of how a lot of alumni from the, this camp, you know, this summer camp, which included uh, Lebrecht, uh, who attended it as a teenager, kind of became these like, major figures um, in the fight for uh, disability rights and uh, the the eventual passage of the American with Disabilities Act. And yeah, so it was funny. You know, it was heartbreaking at times uh, to me. And I say this as someone, you know, who's able-bodied, it didn't feel like inspiration porn to me um, in the sense that I don't, in a sense that almost every single person they interviewed was part of this community. So they got to talk about their own experiences and it was through their lens and their viewpoint 
And it wasn't like somebody, you know, being like, oh, look how uplifting this was and how everything was solved by the end, which, you know, in reality, that's very much not the case. Um, I would say if there's anything that I've gone down a little, um, I would say Wander Darkly. Yeah, I feel that. I attended the premiere for Wander Darkly, and I liked it as somebody who's uh, taken a lot of psychedelics. I like narratives that kind of bend reality a lot. And I, I remember just, just sitting there uh, at the premiere really thinking that it was hitting a lot of the, the right emotional notes, but maybe maybe a little too neatly. And it, I mean, it, it's something that was was really well made, really well put together, but uh, it, it just compared to all the other ones, it, it really didn't la- leave that much of an impact. Uh, I'd also say on a on a related note to Crip Camp, I did not see it, but I did sit next to one of the producers at the Miss Americana premiere, and she was really intently grilling me on whether I was intending to see Crip Camp, which I actually I really would have liked to have seen it, but uh, it it didn't. Since it premiered early and a lot of the the screenings were clustered at the beginning, it was clashing with a lot of things that I had to see for assignments. So I I didn't have a chance to, and the producer was 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 really not all that happy. I was having to offer her a weed gummy to uh, <laughs> try and appease her. We had bonded off of uh, we had bonded uh, from pictures of of my dog that she had seen on my cell phone. So, uh, but I, I spent the rest of the festival hearing. So many great things about that movie, and uh, I really wish I had seen it because uh, it was the talk of the town, and uh, it seems like it did it done pretty well. But uh, I, I was just really grateful to to make it out of Miss Americana without uh, having to uh, commit in writing to having seen either that or uh, the producer. I think had five other documentaries there. <laughs> uh, I, I believe it's coming out in March. I don't have an exact date for that, but. As far as Netflix's slate, and they had a pretty sizable slate that they brought to Sundance. I think they were uh, Netflix, and Netflix is a company, not a person, but I tend to use they colloquially. Uh, yeah, they had a ton. Yeah, you know, Netflix came in with the most amount of movies and documentaries. And aside from Miss Americana, I think Crip Camp might be in you know, a couple of the movies like uh, Horse Girl, I think comes out this week. Aside from those, I think like Crip Camp also had a pretty short, you know, amount of time between the Sundance premiere and its eventual release date. Um, yeah. Miss Americana is, is out now. It uh, premiered there and now, now everybody can watch it. Yeah. Even, even before the end of the festival. And I mean, I, I, I thought a lot of that was strange because uh, if you go back to the early days of Sundance, it was a festival about getting indie movies distribution. And now it seems like it's it's more of a, a red carpet thing for uh, a lot of these movies. And then there's this, this huge presence of Netflix, which is itself a distributor. So any movie that Netflix has at Sundance uh, is, you know, n- not, not there to, to serve the... Uh, initial intentions of the festival. I mean, there's there's also the the competition aspect, but uh, I I just think it's it's kind of weird that uh, we we have these movies that are supposed to have their premiere there and then come out later in the year, and all of a sudden, 
you have the films that that premiere at Sundance, and then you can everybody can watch them on on Netflix before Sundance has even even started. And it kind of makes you wonder why everybody goes to to Park City when uh, you can just wait and watch it in your your own home just a few days later. I was wondering what you thought about that whole uh, the dynamic with with Netflix and and the distribution as it relates to Sundance. Um, I mean, that's you know the matter of distribution isn't something that I've personally been covering. I know that thanks to distribution deals, I believe um, Netflix got the forty year forty year old version, uh, which I haven't seen. I, he- I heard very good things about. Um, herself, I think, got picked up by Amazon Studios, and that one has Ferris from Game of Thrones in it. Yeah, Vari says hair in that one. Have you seen that one? It lined up <laughs> with my schedule pretty well. Uh, you talked about inspiration, uh, with with as it relates to Crip Camp. Uh, with this one, I thought maybe they were milking kind of the inspirational nature uh, a little bit too much. It's about an Irish woman who's escaping her abusive husband and uh she decides that she's gonna build one of those uh do-it-yourself homes uh in in a housekeeper's backyard you know it's one of those where they're kind of bending over backwards a little bit to to make the the narrative uh fit and it it kind of almost hits too many too many of the right notes and i you know i liked it and with the soundtrack, you kind of, uh, you expect to hear that Brave song by uh, Sarah Burrell, uh, whatever, whatever her name is. Sarah uh, Bareilles. They even, they play, they play Sia, uh, they play Titanium, which, uh, I mean, it's, it's a perfectly good film. But I didn't love it, and I, I kind of wish I'd seen something else. It, it was, it was just okay. Mm-hmm. I think Ironbark also got uh, picked up by uh, I forget what studio, but I think it did. That's like the spy thriller with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, that was one I was gonna see, and then people were saying it was just okay, and uh, it was it, the only time it fit was an early screening that I decided that I would uh, let that cup pass. I was kind of uh, kind of okay on political thrillers, and from from what I was hearing from other people, mm. it was uh, it was good. But I, I honestly didn't hear anybody come out of it saying they just loved it. Then there was the one that was the the remake with uh, Will Ferrell and Julia Louise Dreyfus, directed by the uh, Jim Rash of Community. That uh, was just the one that I had uh, gone into the festival really wanting to see, and just absolutely didn't didn't fit in my schedule. Downhill. Yeah. But uh, I, I, people really didn't seem to uh, love that one either. So I think as far as Downhill goes, it's a remake of this, I believe, Swedish film from 2014 called Force Majeure. And I, from the reviews that I have read, because that was one of those that, like, you know, the conflict didn't work, uh, you know, as far as, like, trying to see it. It comes out in, on Valentine's Day, actually, so... Very short runtime. If this is a movie that sounds interesting, you know, to people who might want something to see that isn't overtly romantic next week. Uh, So I think the thing that the critics were trying to grapple with was why not just watch Force Force Majeure instead? And that film, which 
I did download it on my iPad to, on the plane to go to Sundance, but I just like didn't get around to it because I was watching other stuff and then I took a nap. Did you watch the Downton Abbey movie on the plane? No. No, I actually, um, I watched uh, Honeyland, which was um, a documentary that debuted at Sundance last year and is nominated for two Oscars uh, for a documentary and also international film uh, for North Macedonia. And that one's really good. And then uh, also Hunt for the Wilder People, which I hadn't seen. There was one I saw ahead of time that uh, I couldn't really get out of my head, especially on the plane, as uh, I described the described the plot of it to people uh, uh, for Jumbo, starring uh, I think her name is, is it Naomi. Uh, Naomi, because uh, uh, it's Milan. I mean, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the uh, she's in. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is not a spin on the Henry James book, Portrait of a Lady, which I had to read in grad school. But uh, it's a movie about a girl who falls in love with a uh, theme park ride. She becomes rather obsessed with it. People who I uh, try and explain the movie to go, oh, that's that sounds like you and Mr. Toad. But if you see the movie, she's really infatuated with the ride. And if you've been on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, you would know that uh, there's nothing... You you can't really become infatuated with it because it, it, it is totally natural. It makes sense. It's an understandable love. But actually, I had uh, a funny story. So I was in the uh, Doubletree Hilton writing an article and the publicist for Jumbo came over and said hello, thanked me for my review, which is kind of awkward because I guess I don't have a ton of experience dealing with publicists face to face. And at Sundance, I found myself practically every time I left the screening cornered by them, including some who I've had uh, email correspondence with for over a year. And I'm not like I try not to be a conf like I, I don't like s nobody likes to like say to somebody oh that sucked like right even even like a friend who like really loves like a movie or something you don't like to say oh that was horrible but there are just some where they're like what'd you think of this and you're a critic and you're gonna like review something so I'm like ah it's awkward did that happen to you um I don't think I I think I managed to like slip through so I didn't have too many you know, publicists asking me, what do you think? What do you think right after? I know uh, with the, the press screenings I had gone to, I'd gotten emails from, you know, publicists after the fact asking me what I thought, you know, so a couple of them, I, you know, I sent something to them saying like, here's what I thought. Uh, although one time, so it was on Sunday as my four movie days. Uh, so I had time to grab dinner after the second movie. And I just kept like listening in to these two women who were sitting at the table next to me. And they were, you know, they were talking about the movies they had seen, the movies they were going to see. And then the movie they had just gotten out of, which was the same movie I'd gotten out of. You know, so at one point, you know, like explain, you know, exchange pleasantries. But then one of them noticed that I had the ticket from that movie in my you know, still my badge. And so then we were talking about the movie and then turns out we were bashing the movie. <laughs> so we're like, Oh, what'd you think? 
but but not in a uh I work for this, so I need to know kind of why it was it was nice to like have that conversation of what did you generally think of this movie? So I guess my my main publicist in person interaction at Sundance was pretty human and normal because we were just talking about a movie we had seen versus one they were trying to push on me. Which was kind of nice. That does sound nice. We had two instances, and I'm not going to name the... Actually, you, you, Michelle, know the films because I told you, but I will not reveal it for the listeners out of respect to the filmmakers, but there were two additional Sundance spotlights that were booked for uh, this podcast that had to be canceled because yours truly thought the films were... One of them was not that bad, and then one was just the worst thing at Sundance. Half, More than half the screening walked... It was a present industry screening, but more than half the people walked out. It was horrible, and it's just like one of those things where you're like, how did, why is this... Who? How did, how did this get through to Sundance? Oh, awful. So we will not be featuring uh, that particular film, but uh, you go through my reviews, you probably... Maybe you'll be able to guess which one. Uh, that, I mean, it it was weird. The first, I guess also, did you see Wendy? Yeah, I saw Wendy. Uh, and speaking of films that you're initially pretty high on, but then you, like, it's gone down a little. Like, I still ended up giving it a positive review, but, and I think I liked it more than other people, but I also acknowledge and admit that there were some issues with it. So that was a film... Where, like, if you take a test and you get 100% of the first half right and you get zero of the second half, you get an F. Wendy kind of felt like that. I was in love with it until, like, I was totally ready to file for divorce. I I was at the premiere and I love Peter Pan. I love the Peter Pan ride. I love the Peter Pan story. I emulate Peter Pan in a lot of ways. I don't want to grow up. All of that. And I just like, I'm like, where the hell is this thing going? It was like all of a sudden it was a Terrence Malick movie and I love Terrence Malick. But Wendy was, uh, Wendy was a weird one for me because it was, it, it had, it had everything that I wanted from a movie. And then I also just felt like it it explored all of these. It, it opened up all of these ideas and then it didn't want to answer any of them or, or dig deeper. It kind of reminded me of Lost in a lot of ways in the middle seasons without without any, without mm. even attempting an ending, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. It was it was it was that that was my biggest disappointment of the festival. I, I really wanted to love that one. And I was like, ah. What was your uh, um, what was your biggest um, what was your favorite uh, film from the festival? Uh, I would uh, I think I mentioned it earlier. Uh, Minari was definitely a high point. That was a lot of people's uh, favorites. Yeah, yeah uh, it's uh, it's a twenty fours one of their upcoming films this year. Uh, I don't believe it has a release date other than just you know the general twenty twenty. I could see uh, A24 holding that until later in the year as, you know, for maybe some kind of award season push. It is, 
it's a it's a very small it's a very simple story and i don't mean that as like you know an insult or anything like that it's it's kind of one of those family dramas uh follows a korean american family the parents uh the father is played by steven yun uh who was you know walking dead uh burning okja uh, and, you know, his wife and their two young children uh, move from California to middle of nowhere, Arkansas, uh, because, you know, he bought a farm and he wants to grow Korean crops on, you know, on this land that almost seems like cursed in a way, like not in a supernatural, but because the the last owner just like had zero luck growing anything to the point where, where this guy uh, killed himself. Oh, wow. uh, but S- Steven Yeun's character wants to grow Korean crops so he can kind of target um, all of the, the immigrant families who are moving out here and, you know, want kind of like that taste of home. So it's like he ha- he has ideas in, in mind, um, but, you know, it's like one of those things that doesn't really like work out the way that he wants it to. Um, it's a semi-autobiographical uh, film that, um, you know, it's for uh, director uh, Lee Isaac Chung. Uh, and, but it, it's also, it's like one of those movies. It's like a lot funnier than you think it will because um, the, the family grandmother, um, she comes to stay with them for a while, you know, so there's this huge clash between the grandmother and this seven-year-old kid named David, who's played by Alan Kim, and he's incredible, like, the the actor playing him. And if you've seen the photos of him out of Sundance, he is adorable. And they have this really great, like, you know, back and forth, and they clash, and they, like, come together, and it's, like, it's really, like, heartwarming until the moment where the film just kind of like pulls the rug out from under you. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, it's, it's like one of those films. It's like almost more of a series of vignettes than here's this like overarching plot that takes you through the entirety of the movie, but it really works for me. And the other one I would say is uh, Dick Johnson is dead, which is a Netflix documentary. Uh, I believe it's coming out this summer. And, you know, it's uh, the director, uh, Kirsten Johnson. Uh, she and her father, who is who has dementia and he's like coming at the end of his life. He's in his mid 80s when they start filming. They decide to kind of devise and pull off all of these very mundane, but still kind of fantasy scenarios where uh, the director gets to kill her dad over and over again. They drop a an air conditioner on his head. He gets hit by a car. He gets stabbed by like, a nail. It's on like some kind of board that like hits him in a way. He falls down a flight of stairs. But the thing is, you see how they're doing it. Be, you know, they're not hiding the fact that they're using stuntmen to like help make this happen. And it's fake blood and it's not. You like nobody's getting hurt in this, you know. And and the father, like he's, he's laughing, he you know he's like in on the joke and everything. And it's like this way of kind kind of uh, preserving, you know, someone's memory, someone's essence of themselves, you know, so that they can live forever. Which 
you know, becomes increasingly like, you know, pre- you know, something that is very relevant uh, as, as a father, you know, he has dementia, his memory's going, you know, he's soon going to be like a shadow of himself. And he knows exactly what's going to happen to him because he saw this happen with his wife a few, like a few years before they started filming this. So it's something like that's on the forefront of their mind. So it's, it's dark and silly at the same time. And, and very poignant too. I got one point he's joking about like, Oh yeah. Like you can euthanize me. Like he, he says to his daughter, but he's like, just check with me first. Like, but he says it as a joke and he's smiling as he says it. So there's never like any maliciousness to it all. And there's no, no sense of, Oh, Hey, the daughter, you know, resents her dad or anything like that. And it never feels exploitive. And it, it really got me. I should have brought tissues of that one. I cried a lot. How many movies did you cry during? Uh, I would say openly weeping two, And I would say there were two others that I got teary eyed, but managed to like keep it at bay. But, and I saw 13 total. So I openly weep during one and then got very teary during another. And it is like, Christopher Robin made me cry like six six separate times within that. I cry so easily during movies now. I always blame it, especially. And it's funny, I, I was on, it was my progesterone cycle for like 80% of the festival. So it was like peak Ian crying territory. And the waterworks just did not want to flow. But nine days, nine days was, uh, which won one of the prizes for uh, screenwriting. And I I can't really talk about the scene that made me cry because that would spoil the movie. But it was this. Uh, it kind of took themes that Wendy and Wander Darkly both kind of hinted at, sort of more of a existential. It, it took place in sort of a parallel, sort of pre-purgatory type situation of people who I guess are judged before they're even born. Uh I, I couldn't believe that it was the director uh, Edson Oda's first film. He was uh, it, it it connected. It's two hours. Tony Hale, Buster Bluth was uh, fantastic in a supporting role, and uh, one of the Scots guards. I forget his name. I don't know how I'm forgetting his name because every time I mention the film, his fan account retweet me. Bill Skarsgård, I think. Yeah, that's, oh, that's the one who's in it, right? Yeah, he was great. Uh, Benedict, Benedict Wong was phenomenal. Uh, uh, Zazie Beetz was phenomenal. Winston Duke, who is the lead, was absolutely spectacular. I mean, I, Michelle's probably in the same boat here, and then people listening to a Sundance, uh, podcast are probably also know what this means. You see a lot of movies over the course of the year, and they're not all like, they're not all super great. Some of them are just good. And then you see some where you're like, okay, thousands of movies are put out, and this one is just, it makes you fall back in love with the medium all over again. And that was, that was for me, that was nine days. You just look at uh, the way they were acting, and 
just like holy holy shit they're gonna give the oscar for fucking joker like like that's you think that's acting look at this guy (laughs) but it's the most acting yeah i mean joker i love i love i love comic books everybody knows i love comic books i love batman yep i love joaquin phoenix too for that matter i just anyway not not to not to go on a it's not an oscar podcast (laughs) at least this week i we will probably not be doing an oscar podcast but uh nine days was really one of those where uh you know if you're ever if you're ever wavering in your profession and wonder like what the value of film criticism is that's the kind of movie that just reminds you that okay this is a really powerful medium and you know that's the beauty of of a lot of these films at Sundance that they're able to to make us feel, or they're they're able to uh, the one that we got to see together, Zola, uh, took a spin on. Well, so many movies try to do social media, and yet Zola was like, "Here's the right way to do. Here's the right way to tell Twitter in in narrative film form." Did you like Zola? Yeah, and I think it's fitting that Zola, which is a story that's based on a Twitter thread that I believe the film said 144, but the actual number of tweets is kind of sort of in dispute um, because I believe Asia King, the the woman who posted the initial Twitter thread, kind of deleted it and kept putting it back up. And the, the main version of it that exists is an imager link. So it's like, I don't think it's actually on Twitter anymore. But but again, this giant Twitter thread turned into a movie and like all the transitions are, you know, are, are nods to like the technology that we use. Uh, so it takes place over the course of, or the majority takes place over the course of a weekend. So as time goes on, you see that you know, the update of what day it is, what time it is. And it looks like the, f- the home screen of an iPhone. And then at one point, um, you know, there's this one moment or a couple moments where Zola is, who's played by Taylor page, who I believe had a, a number of smaller roles in TV and film. So I think this is her first leading role and she is great in it. And, so you have her kind of tuning out. So at one point, the the Mac like volume symbol shows her like muting the conversation so she doesn't have to hear it. Another time, a screensaver shows up that would show up on a Mac screen. Um, there are these, you know, little chirpings like every time like a t- you know a tweet gets posted or like a text gets sent, and it it didn't feel. And it almost got kind of became background noise to the point where I didn't really even notice it that much. Yeah. It 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 handled the sort of viral. It's been compared a lot to to Spring Breakers, which I I think is almost kind of unfair because it's an infinitely better film. But uh, although I, I I kind of like uh, my view of Spring Breakers will forever be jaded. I. Uh, when that came out, I was going out with a girl who was obsessed with the movie. I had written like eight articles on it. I didn't understand that. But uh, <laughs> brief, brief aside to, well, oh, that was a while ago. Uh, 
it was also uh, a great showing for Nicholas Braun, who's come a long way since his role in Sky High. Now he's Cousin Greg on Succession. And uh, Riley Keough. That, is that her name? Is that the right yes. way to say it? Yeah, they, they, I finally learned how to say her name. Elvis's granddaughter. She was fantastic. And uh, it just it worked on so many levels. That was Zola, Nine Days, and Promising Young Woman were really my top three that I just loved, loved, loved. And we had uh, we had Anthony Willis on for Promising Young Woman. Emerald Fennel did just such a unbelievable job because we're we're kind of living in the era of of kind of like not quite post Me Too, but well, we are in the the after Me Too era. Uh, uh, kind of examining what has changed, what stayed the same, and to to see her kind of take on masculinity in such a way, I I just I loved that one a lot. So that was the one film out of the entire festival that I was worried I wasn't going to be able to see. You know, again, thanks to the shuffling of the schedule, I decided to try to go to the uh, press and industry screening. Which happened, which I got in line for that right after another screening that I had, you know, got let out. But there were like four rows of just people waiting in line to get into the screening. So I'm just like standing in a tent for an hour wondering, am I going to get in? Am I going to get in? What's going on? Fortunately, I did get in. Um, I would say pre screening, my main criticism was uh, it was. The, it was a theater that was actually a movie theater. So when I'm sitting in the second oh, row, it's kind of oh, terrible. <laughs> so yeah, so my neck wasn't a fan of this movie. Ugh. But yeah, I love this movie. I I definitely think it's going to be controversial and it's going to be polarizing in some regards uh, with how the certain aspects of the story is portrayed. Um, as far as expectations versus reality goes, you know, what the, what the trailer has shown us and what actually plays out in the film. I, I loved it. Um, Carrie Mulligan is fantastic in this. Uh, so is Bo Burnham, uh, who I, I'd seen eighth grade, so I knew he could like write and direct. I hadn't, I don't think I had really seen him act in anything. So it was a nice surprise to see him, you know, be able to act and then, you know, have him and Carrie Mulligan, like just have this chemistry that completely worked for me. And I think I saw somebody joke to be like, Oh, like this is a better origin story, Joker origin story than Joker or something like that. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, but yeah, I, Love this movie. I cannot wait to see it again. I don't know if that's going to be at something like South by Southwest or, you know, when the film like finally comes out in theaters. And I think it it has a lot to say and it uh, it juggles with tone a lot, often on purpose. Um, and I want to see it again, to, you know, to see if it sits as well the second time as it does the first time for me. And it has, I think, it has a lot of thoughtful things to say about, you know, 
how we process trauma, how we process grief, you know, the patriarchal society that we live in where, you know, men are given the benefit of the doubt and uh, survivors are the ones who are vilified. Yeah. And you know, in the effect that it has on, on the, you know, the loved ones when they're no longer there too. My one complaint, I saw the, I was at the premiere of it and uh, Adam Brody is in the opening scene. Mm -hmm. I was really hoping that he was at Sundance because earlier that week I had run into Rachel Bilson at Disneyland. So I would have gotten in the same week to have uh, been in the presence of half of the cast of actually really, we say half the cast of the OC Misha Barton left the show. So really two out of the three because she was a quitter. So I could have, you know, had both Seth and summer, but uh, it wasn't meant to be. He wasn't in the film for uh, that much. So Sadly, uh, that didn't happen. But I think if uh, that's your, uh, if that's the chief complaint, then it's a pretty good film. Yeah, I also, um, I think it does a really good job of kind of playing around with our expectations because you have all of these actors who are famous for playing fairly decent guys. Maybe not like the the best men in the universe fictionally, but. You know, like Seth Cohen is like really known for that. And then you have Max Greenfield is in it and he he was a new girl. And I think his character was like the comic relief, but it, like, you know, maybe an apple, oh, Schmidt, yeah. but not like a terrible human being. And that guy was born to play an asshole. But, <laughs> I mean, he looked like he needs to be punched in the face. I love him, but yeah, he is. a. <laughs> but I, I especially think about it um, with with Adam Brody's casting and, you know, and again, you know, people's main point of reference is going to be the OC when he's playing this person who's completely relatable yet. So freaking terrible. It's like, I, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Well played. Very subversive. Yeah. It was, it was a, it was a great one. Um, we haven't, we should talk about, as as the podcast winds down, we should talk about one that we had both seen uh, that I can't stop thinking about, which is good, because one of the subjects of the film did, if you're, if you're a filmmaker or anybody, an author or, or somebody listening, um, one, one big tip, if you, if you get a review where you don't like something or whatnot, it's never a good idea to send an email about that i learned that years ago as uh, when i got some first bad reviews as an author um i heard so spaceship earth is a movie that is mostly about biosphere 2 which was um kind of like if you take uh the stephen baldwin movie biodome and make it slightly slightly more plausible i guess um but it's really about the group led by john allen Funded by Ed Bass, Chuck Bass is from Gossip Girl's father. No, not really, but he kind of looked... Actually, no, he doesn't look like he could be Bart Bass. Bart Bass is much more of a uh, masculine man than Ed Bass. But doesn't like it, ecology all that much. But uh, Spaceship Earth was uh, a fascinating movie that I actually called an audible. I was going to see Horse Girl, and I knew that you had liked spaceship earth and the way that the press and industry screening was set up uh you 
even though uh, I, I didn't actually think I was going to be able to get into Spaceship Earth because nine days had been right there. And uh, I had originally wanted to see Tesla right before nine days, but there was literally, they were immediately back to back, like not even a couple of minutes. And I said to them, hey, can I leave one theater and go into the other? And they said no, which was a subject of great annoyance. But um, I actually, there was 15 minutes between the end of nine days and Spaceship Earth. And despite that, I left, went and got a coffee at the Doubletree, walked back to the PNI screening, was getting in line for Horse Girl. And the guy in the express line said, are you here for Spaceship Earth or Horse Girl? And I said, can I still get into Spaceship Earth? And then they were like, they have this, they, they do this radio thing on the headset and then you get an escort and it's all like all this weird pizzazz and it was bizarre. But, uh, and the theater wasn't even that packed, so I don't know what they were talking about. But, uh, Spaceship Earth was a very fascinating film where I found that everybody in it was so full of shit. And I, I loved it, but it was just, a, it was a preposterous. It's a preposterous movie. <laughs> That was actually one of my pre-screenings. So uh, I've I've had a little bit of time to kind of just sit down and think about it. And I mean, I'm just amazed at, you know, first of all, the the people who show up in it that you wouldn't expect it to. Um, you know, for the yeah. for the record, uh, I, th- <laughs> I think when um, when this happened, uh, Biosphere 2, the, the two year experiment that is uh, a good portion of this documentary. Uh, I was a toddler when that happened, so I don't remember it happening. So, you know, this is me learning about something I had no idea was a thing. Uh, so, so on top of, you know, finding out about this, you know, incredible and incredibly bonkers story, you have Rue McClanahan filming something about it. <laughs> like a commercial or an info sort of piece about it. And then yeah, you have a random Steve Bannon sighting at the very end. And it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I was, I guess I was, expe- I, I had first learned, I read a book about Bannon and I knew that he had, he had led biosphere too. And I was familiar with biodome, which I think was a spoof of biosphere. Yeah. I'd too. seen that movie but- like way back when I was a kid and my sister was on a poly shore kick. Uh, so, it's, it's, so it's like, yeah, that part. Yes. We, um, a, a friend of the podcast who's been on, uh, Adriel Hampton who's running for governor is formerly of the Mike Gravel campaign was, uh, here. And naturally the only Sundance film I wanted to talk about was spaceship earth. Cause it was so preposterous, but he's actually been in the biosphere at down in, in, Texas, and he was talking about just how ridiculous it is. They have a functional coral reef. It's run by the University of Texas now. My review knocked the film's lack of presentation of the scientific findings, which were kind of uh, subject to, uh, um, you know, their credibility was shot because they were pumping CO2. Apparently they were sneaking food. Um, It wasn't really all that scientific. It was more of this rich hippie kind of doing the thing and i got an email from mark nelson about he sent me his book all about the findings to refute it now mark nelson has been invited on the show if you're listening mark because you read the review and you decided to email me uh, i would like to reiterate in the nicest way possible i would love to have you on to talk about this because i 
find Spaceship Earth and Battlestar Biosphere fascinating, and I would love to talk about it more, but I, I just... It was just this wild... It was like taking the Grateful Dead and, like, a Harvard dorm room and deciding, like, here, here's all this money, make some weird-ass shit, and build a boat. It was it was just... I loved it. I, I loved the movie. Please come on, Mark Nelson. Be like, let's have a cult, but the cult is saving the Earth well before it becomes a thing that we really desperately need to do. And we desperately need to do it. Climate change is real. <laughs> yeah, and let, let's lock eight people in a in a in a in a room for two years for some reason. And it, I mean, I wish they'd focus more on the CO two deprivation era because that looked pretty messed up. Whole thing was just woof. I saw that pretty late in. I know you had at one point said you were docked out. I think kind of why I, why I had avoided Crypt Camp early on was uh, a lot of the Slam Dance slate that I reviewed was docs, and I'd seen a lot of mm-hmm. docs beforehand. And I didn't want to watch documentary, and I knew I was seeing Miss Americana, and uh, I didn't load up like uh, uh, the the disclosure Trans Lives on Screen was playing. I knew I had to cover that. And I saw Feels Good Man, the Pepe the Frog movie, which I loved. Poor Matt Fury. I I would love to give that man a hug. Although I didn't go up to him after the premiere and hug him. But he looks like... I would also like to share a joint with him. Uh, so uh, that would be... <laughs> that would be great. But the, the I just... I didn't want to see documentaries at first. And then later on, I, uh, my, my back half had a lot more. But I wanted to see... I wanted to see... Yeah. I wanted to see things that I... I, I, I get asked to do a lot of documentaries, so I didn't want to go there and just watch documentaries. You know? Yeah, I know I've done festivals where that's all I cover to the point where I've been asked, oh, do you just cover documentaries? I'm like, no, that's just kind of how my schedule, sh- you know, shook out for this. Um, but I think I did six movies in two days, and I'm like, okay, I'm, now I'm like filmed out. <laughs> My record on a day was five, which was probably too much. Yeah, I have um, a critic friend who I don't know how successful he was at this. Um, I think he had wanted to see like something like 44 to 47 movies while he was there. And he was there for a good chunk of the festival. And I'm just how I mean, good for you. But how? Well, it's 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 hard to do with from a scheduling perspective. You have to get to the places, you have to like, you have to eat, you have to get in line, you have to. Um, there were a lot, <coughs> there were a lot of times where I was saying to people, uh, to publicists, like, I'll have your people on, but you have to send me a screener because I can't, I don't have time to see this. I have to do other things. Sorry, like, there's just only so much time in the day, and I guess that was kind of the. Uh, the the great challenge of Sundance you have to it, it's like you you have to piece together a schedule that that makes sense and you're not going to get to see everything but uh you, you got to work with what with with what what's plausible and i guess that's why all the the preparation mm-hmm. paid off but it was just it it really it, it was tough and i know uh, i i covered the Tribeca film festival every year and you know in previous years a lot of the stuff i reviewed already premiered at Sundance. So 
you know, so at least like this year, I might get be able to get a head start on that. And for some of the stuff I missed, at least I'll know that there's a good chance that some of it's going to end up showing at Tribeca in a couple months. So, so I feel like, you know, just based on the, you know, the festival schedule and everything. And then there's also, you know, South by Southwest next month that like, it's, it's going to work out in the end. Like I'll, I'll get to see more things. And then, you know, then there will be movies that are coming out in theaters. You have a promising young woman's coming out in April. Um, you know, like the Netflix documentaries are coming out soon ish. Yeah, it's uh, it's a struggle to see everything, but uh, as we wrap up, what were your closing thoughts of of the festival as a whole? Um, now that I've been home for I would say about a week now, uh. Like all of the the struggles are kind of like washed away, and I'm like, ooh, I can't wait to do this next year. Uh, I, you know, it's my first festival, so I can't compare it with previous ones. Uh, I know I, I've read conversations, you know, listen to podcasts about, you know, people trying to find the Oscar narrative in this already, and I don't know, you know, how much of that I've I've personally seen. Uh, I know the the father. Uh, which stars uh, Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman as a father and daughter. And he has, he has dementia. I heard that is incredibly well acted and that like could be a Oscar to contender. I've heard that possibly, you know, potentially about Minari and, you know, maybe a couple of the documentaries. Uh, so as the year goes on, it'll be interesting to see like what kind of stays and what, you know, what lives and dies, by the festival, you know, as far as like people's interest in things. Um, but it's a great crash course and like trying to do the thing and do the thing like quickly. And it's just, it, it's a sprint and it's a really fun one. Yeah. I wrote almost every one of my reviews on my phone. So I didn't want to carry. I knew I was dealing with, the uh, half tank of gas and stamina and that I was my body would crap out. And I just kinda had to keep going. So learned how to do that. Filed really quickly. Only had seven of my twenty four when I got back. And uh I guess I would say on a um positive note, I uh I, I really I, I come I come to these things a lot with like a, a little bit of apprehension going to Trump states as a transgender person because you just never know. Utah has great LGBTQ laws. Uh, most of the people there were pretty nice. Uh, fair amount of Uber misgendering, but I mean, you know, Ian, that that can happen. Less so on day to day. People people were great. I made a lot of friends in line chatting with people and. As Michelle knows, sometimes I have a trouble uh, shutting up when I want to talk. And, you know, because you spend so much time sitting down in a movie, then, uh, you know, you get out and you just kind of want to be a bit of a chatterbox. So I made lots of of friends in line that I ended up seeing for future ones. And uh, I wore these pink Doc Martens that I got uh, probably 
a hundred compliments on, which was great because my uh, own personal uh, style is totally non-existent. I wear fashion colors and I have no sense of style. So that was uh, warming. I, I loved it. I didn't want to leave. I had the time of my life. I, I really, I enjoyed it. It was a dream come true. It was exhausting and I almost got sick. Yesterday I was feeling very crappy and uh, I bounced back. And although some of that was I went to Disneyland on Sunday, because, of course, um, I, uh, you know, it's it's uh, this this post-surgery, post-transition uh, uh, stamina is is always something that uh, I worry about. But I uh, like like the cast of Wendy. I don't want to grow up. And Sundance proved that I don't have to grow up. It was like an adult summer camp for film nerds. So that was kind of kind of the beauty of it. It was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time. Hope to go back next year. We'll uh, see what a year it's been. And also, just on a on a on a note for this podcast, this podcast started last March, the end of March, to cover that niche art house show, Game of Thrones. And you know, I, I you would, I had no idea what I was doing last. The first time Michelle came on, we were very much in the I don't know what the fuck I'm doing stage. Uh, maybe we're still there, but. Uh, I was we recorded an episode from from a Sundance media room with the uh, director of, of, of it was a short film but with with director of a uh, uh, people in competition. It's pretty wild that uh that kind of turn of events and to see to see my reviews. Uh, I got emails uh, Focus Features emailed me twice about two of my fan side reviews. Can we use these in marketing material? I'm like, "Whoa, that's kind of exciting." So um that it 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 really it was one of those uh, unbelievable experiences. I really had a wonderful time. And now it's time to like catch up on sleep even more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I got up and I was just uh, Tara. Tara was yelling at me the next day that uh, she had not seen me do anything that wasn't like review or booking or uh, recording. Or I just, I just wanted to keep working. So. um now, now, now I get to sleep uh, a little bit, so that's always nice. But um, it's been uh, it's been great catching up on Sundance. I got to meet you know we're on a roll of uh, I, I've met a ton of people who uh, first who I first met through the podcast. So that was it was it was great to meet you and see Zola and eat at that uh, pizza place. Uh, it was it was uh, I had a, I had a really great time there. And it was yeah, it was to great to meet you too. And it's it's always fun to meet people that you only know through the internet and be like, wow, they're real people. They're not robots. And yeah, they're not an anime or, avatar. Uh, <laughs> was it Cylons too? Maybe. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah, Cylons from the Battlestar Spaceship Earth. Um, that makes sense. Do you want to tell us uh, where we can find you? The, the yeah, narrative, obviously. I. You can read my Sundance coverage and all of the other fun and geeky stuff uh, that uh, I will be covering. Um, Coming up, I think, will be the last season of The Clone Wars that's debuting on Disney+. Plus. You can follow me at Twitter at Mishjaw, which is M-I-C-H-E-J-A-W. And um, yeah, otherwise I'll just be on the Internet floating around <laughs> yeah <laughs> floating around uh yes so 
And to everybody, special shout out for our Russian listeners. I would uh, say things in Russian, but uh, I only, I actually don't really know any of those phrases. Uh, so stupid thing to say. Uh, thank you everybody for listening and we will see you next time.